Most people generally understand the importance and necessity of a parent's responsibility in regards to the upbringing and welfare of their children. It's a parent's duty to look out for what is best for their kids and to keep them out of harm's way. In families with strong religious or spiritual beliefs, it is often the case that the parents' fate is reflected in the way in which they raise their offspring. But what happens when a parent's personal spiritual beliefs become a danger to the health of their children? This is Nordic True Crime. On the 15th of February 2019, an 18-month-year-old baby girl called Lily was taken to the Accident and Emergency Department at Dottensilvia's Children's Hospital on the west coast of Sweden. The nurses who first met young Lily in the hospital waiting room made a quick assessment in regards to her condition. They instantly recognized that she was in a very poor condition. So the emergency alarm button was pressed and she was immediately taken to see a doctor. Anna was one of the doctors on call that night and it was she who answered the call to see Lily. And she too was instantly shocked and concerned by her condition. She asked Lily's family the standard routine questions in regards to what had happened and it was the girl's father, Mark, who replied. He said that the whole family had been sick with stomach flu during the previous five days. He and the girl's mother, Sarah, had recovered from the bug, but Lily had gradually gotten sicker and sicker as the days had went on. Anna started her examination of the young girl, and her concern began to grow when she failed to establish any kind of verbal contact with her. Lily's pale body lay on a stretcher, in a state of complete lifelessness. And no matter what Anna did, she got no reaction. Her breathing was extremely sharp and fast, but Anna couldn't detect any signs of pneumonia or something of a similar nature, which would have explained why she was having trouble breathing. Lily was staring up at Anna with an empty look on her face, failing to even react when the doctor tried a so-called pain simulation test on the young girl. A pain simulation test is a common method of practice used to assess the level of consciousness of a patient. It could be a pinch by the jawbone line or rub of the knuckles over the patient's ribs, both of which are initially quite painful. And if fully conscious, most people would react to such a thing, particularly an 18-month-year-old child. But Lily didn't. Anna turned her attention back to Lily's father, 
asking him if his daughter had been eating well. Mark explained that she had been suffering from sickness and diarrhea the past few days, but despite this, she had managed to keep some water down, which she had drank a few hours before they came to the hospital. Anna then asked if Lily was following her growth curve in regards to her age. Children in Sweden are entitled to receive the same free health care regardless of where in the country they live. From the day they are born, every child receives free regular health checkups at a place called the Barnavårdscentralen, BVC, or Child Welfare Center in English. At the BVC, they make sure that a child is developing and growing as they should and can determine at various stages of a child's life if they are deviating from the so-called standard growth pattern. It is of course a very valuable service for both parents and children, as it essentially means that children can get all the help they need as quickly as possible if something unusual is picked up on by one of the child nurses. BVC also works as an extra support tool for the parents as it includes various free classes such as breastfeeding help and parental classes for new parents, where you can meet other people who are in the exact same position as you. BBC is also responsible for offering parents the opportunity to vaccinate their children as part of the national vaccination program, which includes the tetanus and measles vaccine, among others. And the BVC is also where the child nurses will assess each individual child's projected growth curve. So this was the growth curve that Anna was asking Mark about, as his daughter lay lifeless on a stretcher in front of his own eyes. Mark told Anna that Lily had never been to the BVC, and therefore had never been to any of the health checkups. These checkups at BVC are not mandatory, However, if the parents for some reason choose not to come to these appointments, then the staff are obligated to report this to social services. The reasoning behind this is that the Swedish government has a responsibility to make sure that all children born in Sweden receive the right to free health care to make sure that they are being taken care of to the appropriate standards. And when parents choose not to attend checkups, This is often a strong indication that there is something not quite right at home. And it is therefore the responsibility of the state to check in on the welfare of said child. Anna couldn't see any external injuries on Lily's body and was desperately trying to figure out what could be wrong with her. She then asked Mark what her normal diet consisted of and was told that she was being breastfed, that she also ate some, quote, basic food. He didn't specify exactly what the basic food consisted of, and Anna was at the time occupied with trying to further assess Lily's deteriorating condition. The blood tests showed that Lily's blood sugar level was dangerously low, so the necessary fluids her body needed were administered via an intravenous drip. There was no sign of any infection in her body, but her temperature was particularly low. However, as they didn't know for sure what was actually wrong with her, she was given antibiotics as a preventative method 
indicates that an infection was present. And this is when Mark became upset. He told Anna that this was the problem with modern healthcare, the overuse of antibiotics. He really didn't appreciate that the doctor had chosen this method of approach, but he didn't try to intervene and stop anyone administering the medicine, despite his disapproval. After a short while, more test results came back from the lab, and initially, both Anna and her team thought that there must be something wrong with the samples, as the results were very unusual, to say the least. More blood was taken from Lily, and new tests were made, but once again, they displayed the same results. These tests showed that Lily had a very low blood pH range, which explained why her breathing was very sharp and fast. In essence, her body was trying to compensate for the high acidity level present in her blood. Lily's blood pH wasn't just low, it was dangerously low. So Anna gave her medicine in order to try and raise the pH level to keep her alive. She was then moved to the intensive care unit to have some x-rays taken to try and determine the reason behind her gravely poor physical condition. It was then that Mark stepped in and told the medical staff not to give his daughter any further treatment without his or his wife Sarah's approval. At the time, Lily was in the ICU department being treated by a senior doctor called Per. He stated that at the time of her arrival, Lily was in a deep state of unconsciousness and didn't respond to any pain stimulation at all. He also said that the level of acidity in Lily's blood wouldn't be something that could be caused by a general dose of the stomach flu, not even if she had been sick for five days, as her father had said. Furthermore, she was really small for her age. At 18 months old, she only weighed 6.3 kilos. A normal weight for an 18-month-year-old is generally somewhere between 10 to 12 kilos. Pat was extremely concerned. Further tests were taken, and these results showed that Lily's blood count was at 59, when it should have been between 110 and 120. She also had dangerously low levels of vitamin K, D, B, and iron. Her iron level was actually the lowest level possible, which can be detected through testing, so it was more than likely even lower than what the test results showed. If your body doesn't get the required amount of vitamin B12, then the effects can be irreversible. Permanent damage to the development of the nerves and the bone marrow is very much possible. And the considerably low levels of vitamin B12 the test results showed also revealed that Lily had been lacking this vitamin in her diet for a while, as it takes a considerable amount of time for B12 to drop to the levels that were present in her body. So according to Per, Lily's condition was certainly not a result of a case of the stomach flu. This was something that had been going on for a much longer period of time, leaving Lily so malnourished that she was only hours away from dying.
The doctors needed to give Lily the required nutrients her body had been starved of in order for her to stay alive. But this was also a very dangerous practice if it wasn't carried out correctly. When the body has been in starvation mode for a long period of time and then is suddenly flooded with nutrients, it can collapse and cause heart failure due to its inability to handle the rapid change. But since none of the doctors had ever seen such a malnourished patient before, particularly one so young, they had to seek help from their colleagues who had worked for Doctors Without Borders, who had specific experience of safely reintroducing nutrients into a malnourished patient's body. Thankfully, with the help received from their colleagues, the treatment worked. Slowly but surely, Lily was brought back to a level of stability until her life was no longer in immediate danger. She was kept in the hospital for some time, and during this period, she grew and flourished with the help of a properly balanced diet. Within just three weeks, she had gained 24% of her original weight. If her illness was a direct result of the stomach flu bug, then this weight gain would have been in reality no more than about 10%. During her time in hospital, it was also discovered that Lily had an old fracture of her jawbone, but it could never be established exactly how this injury occurred or how much force was needed to inflict it. Both Anna, who treated Lily on her arrival at the hospital, and Per, the senior doctor, reported Lily's parents, Mark and Sarah, to social services. They determined that as the young girl's parents, they should have realized that their daughter was severely malnourished and on the brink of death. Both Mark and Sarah were arrested and later charged with grievous bodily harm. It also came to light during Lily's time in hospital that there were no records whatsoever of her very existence. Her parents had never been in contact with the child welfare authorities throughout the pregnancy and had chosen to give birth to Lily at home. And after she was born, they didn't register their daughter's birth, so she wasn't assigned a personal number or as a citizen of Sweden. This, in fact, is illegal. But Lily's parents claimed that they didn't want her to be part of the system and labeled as a Swedish citizen. Instead, they wanted Lily to be a citizen of the world. They were very much against the so-called normal way of living as they were believers of Breatharianism, with Sarah even having practiced the belief for a period of time. So what is Breatharianism? Here is a short clip explaining the controversial movement. The art of living without food. The Breatharians are those who live on light and energies derived from the sun. But it is no magic trick. The Prana Yoga, as it is otherwise called, was practiced by many a wise person for centuries in India. What is prana? Prana in its simplest means life or soul. But in a deeper context, prana means energy. 
like those botanical lives living on sunlight, the energy here is derived from the sun. According to yogic sciences, the sun emits 12 different types of pranas, but only those who are physically, mentally and spiritually evolved can absorb them all. How does prana replace food? The food we eat is broken down into smaller particles of glucose that is converted to energy or prana. Pradarians learn to absorb that vital energy directly from the sunlight and from the surrounding atmosphere. So there is no need for eating and then breaking down the food for energy. How does one live on prana? You would be surprised to know that one of the most basic steps of prana yoga is just by breathing deeply or pranayama. When you breathe deeply and deliberately, your body becomes more aware and conscious of its surroundings and starts to absorb energy or prana from the environment. Another common method of prana yoga says that you can absorb energy by sun gazing. Gently stare at the sun just before sunset and sunrise. Starting from 30 seconds, you can go up to 45 minutes of sun gazing. When you sun gaze, your entire being draws energy. You have to be really commuted to make the process of living on prana work for you. It doesn't come so easily, but things such as prana yoga proves to be possible with physical, mental and spiritual dedication. So as the clip explained, breatharians believe that you can survive without eating food or drinking water. Instead, they say that humans can live off the water that surrounds us in the atmosphere and the energy produced from sunlight. Before Sarah became a breatharian, she had what can be described as a fairly normal life, but something was missing so she decided to quit her job and travel. Since Sarah isn't from Sweden, but of Indonesian descent, she spoke English during the trial. And this is what she had to say. The reason why I started living this way was because, um, well, I've been, I've been working and... Um, I did my bachelor's degree and I did my master's degree in architecture and I worked in a couple of um, companies and um, I had a house, a house, um, car and a dream job, work nine to five each day, but I wasn't happy. It just feels like that something was, I was missing out on something in life. It felt like there was a heart calling on me to having to do something and so, um, and so I decided to, um, to, to leave my work and leave possessions I had and just have a, a really simple life, having two bags and do the thing that I really love to do following, um, a wise man's advice. And, um, he's known as Jalaluddin Rumi and he said that, to always follow the excitement of your joy. And my excitement of my spirit is to travel. So, so I started to 
travel, live by traveling. So it has become a spiritual journey for me. In 2012, whilst Sarah was living in Australia, she had an abortion, which unfortunately came with complications. Due to problems caused by the abortion, doctors told her that she would probably never be able to conceive children in the future. Sarah was devastated by this news and decided to pack up and travel the world to clear her head. In 2014, she met Mark, a Swedish guy who was living in England at the time. They started dating each other and soon fell in love. Mark was particularly interested in alternative medicine and was very skeptical of so-called modern Western medicine. And despite lacking any medical education whatsoever, he fiercely stood by his beliefs. Sarah told Mark about what the doctors had said about her chances of conceiving again, and in reply he told her that what the doctors were saying was simply not true. He claimed that she would definitely be able to get pregnant again if she stopped consuming all of the toxins that, according to him, quote, interfered with the immune system's passive ability of cellular regeneration. And to do this, he stated, she would have to use a placebo method based on faith. She had to use her mind to really convince herself to believe that she could get pregnant again. And that in turn would regenerate the cells in her body and she would become pregnant again. So between 2014 and 2016, they made some major life changes in order for Sarah's body to cleanse itself from the debilitating toxins in order to get pregnant. She put her body through three separate seven-day fasts where all she could consume was water. And to finish the process off, she became a breatharian and survived only on air and sunlight for seven days. When the seven days were over, she continued to only consume water for an additional 22 days. Sarah posted a video of her seven-day fast on her YouTube channel. The time is now 23.55. In five minutes I'm going to commence my breatharian process and I'd like to share at this moment my last drink before I start fasting, dry fasting for seven days. Cheers. So, that's it. Thank you. It's time, it's time, it's time, it's time. Finally, the day I've been waiting for, the time I've been waiting for all this day. So here it is, blessed water, 
being soaked in shung with shungard stones for a few hours and I'm about to drink it after seven days. Mm. Oh. Oh. oh wow, it's so good. Wow. I kinda I can't describe how it feels. Wow. Wow, that was that was extremely blissful. That was extremely blissful. I'm I'm so glad I finally reached this point. Even from the first day, the moment after I had my last drink, I meditated and oh, I had these bombarded thoughts of fear and doubt that I'll never make this day, that I'll, that I'll feel so much pain and suffering throughout these seven days but I'm so glad that I had such great will to be so determined to do this, to become a breatharian because I know it's not just for me but it's for my love for all beings on earth so I'm really proud of myself uh, anyway, um, so I'm a breatharian now. I guess, well, for the next two weeks, um, it'll be a healing process. So, I've been recommended to have at least one and a half liters of liquid each day, and then after that, I'm gonna um, join mats with this 40 day water fast, which commenced also on the 8th of August. And then after that, I'm going to slowly let go of myself from liquid, slowly but sure. And yeah, cheers to breatharianism, new beginning. Mark claimed that he closely monitored Sarah during her dry fast. It is pretty much common knowledge that after three days without drinking water or other fluids, the human body will soon be in a state of severe dehydration, which will eventually lead to death. But since Sarah managed to get through all seven days without water, his doubt of the approaches and practices of Western world medicine only grew stronger, and his beliefs were strengthened tenfold when Sarah became pregnant in 2016. Together, they decided to move to Sweden before baby Lily was born. Whilst there, Sarah never went for any kind of health checkups, which, as said, are of course free of charge, and they decided that they would give birth at home. Sarah was pregnant for an astonishing 12 months, a dangerously long time for both mother and child. But Sarah and Mark were never worried, 
since they had heard of other cases where the child wasn't ready to come out after nine months. They believed that a period of nine months of pregnancy was a time frame which was totally fabricated and decided by Western medicine. Mark stated that women had been giving birth to children for thousands of years without the intervention of doctors. So together, they patiently waited for Lily to come out when she was ready to do so. Here is Sarah talking about it. I read a book and a few websites of women who gave birth um, at home and naturally and also unassisted as well. And um, most of the advices I got was that the baby will come when they are ready. And also considering that there are some babies in the Asian countries who have been born after being in the womb for 12 months, up to 18 months. We, we didn't have any concern. We just thought that she wasn't ready yet. When Sarah went into labor, Mark was by his partner's side. He had been reading up on what to do during the birthing process as they both believed that they didn't need anyone with midwifery experience present. If it could be read about in a book, then Mark could handle it. This reasoning was also partly due to the fact that Mark had a son from a previous relationship, and when he was born in the hospital, Mark said that it was one of the most traumatic experiences he had ever been through. Not in terms of the birth itself, but the way in which he was treated. He felt as though he was constantly pushed aside by the staff and ignored. So this time around, he wanted the birth to take place at home, without any unwanted interference. The birth took 48 hours, and when Lily was finally born, Mark decided not to cut the umbilical cord, as he had read that the placenta continues to give the child important nutrients and helps to boost the immune system for up to 48 hours after the birth. It stayed attached to Lily for days, until it shriveled up, and they then decided to burn it off. Lily was described as a happy and healthy girl by both Sarah and Mark, but just a little bit smaller than other kids her age. She spent all her time with her parents and very seldom met any other children. Mark and Sarah considered themselves as nomads and didn't want to be part of the system. The couple moved around a lot and stayed with different friends. Mark didn't have a job, so he would often go out in the forest to try and find food such as nuts and mushrooms, where Sarah did sometimes work, but this would only involve carrying out odd jobs for her friends. We stay at people's place and then um, help out with what they need help with. For instance, um, my background is in architecture, so I help people with designing renovations or buildings. And also, I work with a friend who has um, um, a website and an Instagram account. So I help out with um, posting messages and also replying people's messages. And I 
I get paid for that. And we get food and clothing, for instance, from the free store that's available in Cortadola. And also from trees. They wanted to extract themselves from society and be free. But at the same time, they heavily relied on the help of others for food and a place to stay. In truth, it was somewhat of a contradictory existence. Mark and Sarah mostly lived their lives as vegans, but before Lily was born, and as previously mentioned, Sarah also lived as a breatharian. Here she is explaining this at the trial. Um, well, as I said that my body has changed, and so I only eat when I feel like to have something to taste in my mouth. But I didn't need to have the, the usual amount of food that I usually have I to sustain myself. She explains why she believes that humans can live without food. The way I view life also is that everything is an illusion. Um, I believe there's only one, which is, as we all, as religion would know, as God. But basically, um, I believe that... um, that we, we don't need physical food. And as what I've experienced is that when one is 100% ready and 100% believe in that, that you could actually live without food or water. But because we have been subjected to physical food throughout our life, then it is hard to be able to reconstruct the way we think. There's a man who um, who is a breatharian for 70 years and he he doesn't drink water at all. He just breathes. And he did that since he was 10 years old. But he, he kept growing because he believes himself. He was 100% sure and 100% believing that he can live without food or water, so he was able to live that way for such a long time. She also explained why breatharianism should and will be the end goal for humankind. Um, it's, I see this as a evolution, as a human, as a part of human evolution. I know that it's really hard to accept at this time of age but seeing that there are people out there who can actually live this way and considering with what's going on in the world at the moment with all the natural disasters the global warming climate change this way of life is starting to enter into humanity as part of continuous of um of reproduction of continuing humanity in, in this world After the birth of her daughter, Sarah realized that she needed to eat some food because she was breastfeeding. However, the problem was that she was of course on a very strict diet due to her beliefs. And these beliefs, in regards to how unnecessary food was for human life, was about to become 
a serious problem for young Lily. When she was about two months old, she started breaking out in small red dots all over her body. And just a couple of months after this, these red dots, which were in fact eczema, had spread to her face and other parts of her body. And they were now the size of fists. Her parents realized that the situation was becoming serious, but instead of seeking medical help, Mark decided that the rash must have been due to some kind of food allergy. So he began his own investigation. He told Sarah that they were going to exclude one product at a time from her already sparse diet to see what was causing the eczema. But Sarah wanted to exclude everything at once and only ate the bare essentials in order to survive. And according to Mark, the eczema on Lily's body disappeared almost immediately. Sarah continued with her strict diet for a few months before they started to reintroduce one basic product at a time in order to try and figure out which food Lily was allergic to. In the end, they eventually came to the conclusion that she had an intolerance for salicylates. Salicylates can be found naturally in plants, functioning as the plant's growth hormone. But they can also be found in medicines, such as aspirin. Since Mark and Sarah lived as vegans, this of course could be the source of the problem. But the amount of salicylates are much lower in fresh and unripe fruits than they are in overripe fruits, such as a brown banana. So they began to feed Lily only with unripe fruit and vegetables. They believed that they had now achieved what they had set out to do, find out the cause of Lily's eczema and cure it. So Lily was never taken to see a doctor. After some time, the couple made the decision to leave Sweden and move to Indonesia, where Sarah originally came from. Her family had a house that they all could live in together. And in 2019, they began to put their plans into motion. But in order for Lily to make the long journey, Mark decided that she would have to go through a strict travel diet two to three weeks prior to their departure. Another drastic change to Lily's already meager intake of food, of course meant that she wouldn't be getting anywhere near enough nutrition. Something that both Mark and Sarah were well aware of. But since it was only a temporary diet, this wasn't considered to be much of a problem. They were convinced that Lily would be just fine after she had completed the so-called travel diet. Then she would be able to eat normally again. Well, at least what they considered to be normal. The travel diet Lily was put on consisted mostly of different types of pastes and nuts. After having been on the diet for roughly two weeks, they received a visit from Mark's parents, who had just been on holiday in Germany. Unfortunately, they had contracted a dose of seasonal stomach flu bug, which they then passed on to Mark, Sarah and Lily. The whole family became really sick and couldn't keep any fluids or food down. 
she vomits so much that it's like every time she swallows her saliva, she just rejects it. And um, in the morning, I could already feel her body shrinking straight away. She was losing quite a bit of weight already. Ever since I, she started vomiting so much, I was thinking, I was thinking that we should. I, I just want to heal her as soon as possible, seeing how much she was suffering. But um, which um, and also, of course, seeing that. Um, my decision, my thinking at that time was being a worried mom. And so she was um, vomiting throughout the day and drinking lots of water as well and also being breastfed. And on the Tuesday, it was followed by diarrhea. And on the Wednesday, she was much better. She was healthier. Well, she seemed healthier. She was active. Um, walking around more um, but the only thing is that she didn't urinate for throughout the day and on the Thursday she became weak again and still um, vomiting quite a bit and still having diarrhea as well and um, on the night time um, she was sitting by the um, on the couch and um, we spoke about if she doesn't become better the next day, then we'll take her to the doctor. And because um, she was weak again, um, I checked out a recipe um, to help with dehydration and made a homemade um, drink, which is salt, water and sugar. And so she had that, but um, she vomited as well, so she didn't really get much in it, from it. And then um, close to dawn, she was starting to have a, her breathing was starting to get heavier. And so um, I got a bit worried and um, Googled what this was and saw signs of dehydration. And um, one of them being she not urinating for about eight hours, which which she wasn't on the Wednesday. And then with the heavy breathing was another sign of dehydration. Even though they suspected that Lily was severely dehydrated, which of course is very dangerous, especially for a young child, Mark was determined that they didn't need to go to the hospital. He considered himself to be perfectly capable of assessing his daughter's physical condition through studying her feces. He explained during the trial that this is a method that was used in ancient Greece, long before modern medicine came on the scene. After checking up on Lily, he came to the conclusion that there wasn't any serious signs of dehydration visible to cause alarm. At the same time, Mark himself wasn't feeling very good, and shortly thereafter, he claimed that he passed out. When he woke up some hours later, he realized that Lily was in a much worse condition than before. He went through his self-learned physical examinations of his daughter, and this is when he came to the conclusion that she was really sick. 
At the trial, he claimed that he was very much capable of putting an IV in his daughter's hand by himself in order to hydrate her, but since he only had needles at home which were intended for adults, he decided that now was the time to go to the hospital. However, he didn't want to phone an ambulance because he believed that he would be putting an unnecessary burden on the healthcare system. So instead, he called his mother, who picked them up and drove them to the emergency room. Mark decided that he wouldn't use the normal entrance to the hospital because he knew that his daughter was really sick. And as he put it, he didn't want to have to go through the charade of answering questions before getting to see a doctor. Instead, he went through the same entrance the paramedics take, where he was stopped by a nurse who told him that he would have to go back and go through the correct door. Most people understand the reasoning behind checking in at the reception before seeing a doctor, but Mark was appalled by the treatment he had received. He told the nurse that his daughter was dying, but in reply she told him once again that he will have to go through the correct entrance. Mark couldn't believe what he was hearing, but finally did as he was told, and on arrival at the reception, Lily was immediately attended to. She was then taken to a treatment room, which quickly filled with various hospital staff. But once again, it didn't take long before Mark became angry. He claimed that after it became clear to the hospital staff that Lily didn't have a personal identification number or medical journal or had never received any vaccinations, the attitude of the nurses and doctors towards him and his family changed in an instant. He said that he saw and heard them whispering to each other the various treatments and examinations they were carrying out on his daughter, which in turn made Mark feel like he was invisible. He then loudly demanded to be informed of exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it. When Lily returned from the x-ray department, both Mark and Sarah were informed that a lumbago acupuncture procedure had been performed on their daughter. A lumbago acupuncture is a process where thin needles are inserted into the lower back in order to try and improve the blood flow. This, of course, set Mark off. He claimed that going through this method of acupuncture without any anesthetic was the equivalent of being stabbed in the back, and he now no longer believed that his daughter was in danger of dying because he didn't believe that they would carry out such a procedure if she was in such a bad condition. Sarah and Mark were then taken into a room where they had a meeting with some of the hospital staff. They were informed that Lily had just been hours away from dying due to the severe malnourishment her body had endured. Mark again began to argue with the doctors, eventually putting an end to the meeting. And shortly after abruptly ending the meeting, both the police and social services arrived at the hospital. Lily's parents were informed that the daughter would be taken from them for her own protection. Mark and Sarah were devastated. They couldn't believe what was happening. They felt that they were being punished for not believing in Western medicine and for wanting to live an alternative lifestyle. During the trial, 
Mark became angry with the prosecutor's questions in regards to the amount of food Lily had been receiving. He didn't think that the question had any relevance, since he believed that children understood by default exactly how much they need to eat in order to receive the nutrition their bodies require. Lily's main source of food was breast milk and some vegetables such as broccoli and spinach. But Mark claimed that she would often refuse to eat the food and he didn't want to force it down her throat. He interpreted her refusing food as her body telling her that it had sufficient fuel and that more food wasn't required. When questioned about Lily's low levels of vitamins, Mark replied that her vitamin D level was low because she had been sick and therefore was unable to go outside in the sunlight. The lack of vitamin B12 was because he himself was not able to find the correct mushrooms in the forest because it was still wintertime and the lack of vitamin K was unimportant according to him as he didn't believe that Lily was showing any symptoms that pointed towards her lacking in that particular vitamin. But despite knowing that his daughter's vitamin levels were dangerously low, neither Mark nor Sarah thought that it was a good idea to buy some food or vitamin supplements for Lily. And it never even crossed their minds to put an end to the strict so-called travel diet they had her on. They were even asked about the old fracture to Lily's jaw, which was picked up by the x-ray. Mark's response was that he thought that she probably received this injury during the long labor Sarah went through. But according to him, when Lily was born, she never showed any signs of being in pain. It was also discovered at the hospital that Lily had an old injury on her head. This time, Mark said that it must have been from where she accidentally banged her head on a doorframe when she was around 10 months old. Together, they decided that the injury didn't require a trip to the hospital, as their daughter once again didn't show any signs of being in pain. On the 23rd of May 2019, both Mark and Sarah were convicted to three months in prison for grievous bodily harm. However, on appeal, the sentence was reduced to probation, so neither Mark or Sarah spent any time in prison for their actions. Before, during, and after the trial, Lily was living in a foster home and was, according to her foster mother, eating well, growing, and thriving. But despite her progress, and according to unconfirmed sources, Mark and Sarah have since regained custody of their daughter. The names of the people involved in today's episode are not their actual names. <laughs> 